Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Uh, and in came the Rolling Stones. Every time, I, every time I interview somebody about the Beatles, the first question I ask them is, why the Beatles? So I'll do the same thing for you. The Rolling Stones. Why the Rolling Stones? I mean, what, what did they do that other people didn't that they became this predominant band? Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. I'm sorry Tammy is not in the studio with us this week. Why? Because I was lucky enough to be sent a copy of a book called London Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. It is just on the market, and if you want a copy of it, you have to go online, say to Amazon or another online bookseller, because right now... That's the only place the book is going to be available. It's by author Stephen Toe, and he apparently is connected because the foreword of the book is by Bill Bruford, the drummer of King Crimson and Yes, one of the founding members of Yes. So, for an hour today, great book. I decided to talk classic rock with Stephen Toe, London Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. For an hour today on Rock School. On the phone with me, author Stephen Toe of the book London Reign Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. Stephen, thank you for allowing us to give you a call and do an interview here on the Rock School Show. Joe, thanks for having me on. I'm telling you, I finished your book about two days ago, and there's one question that just continues to beat at me. How in the world did you get Bill Bruford, drummer for Yes and King Crimson, to write a foreword for this thing? I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because he was, um, I, he's a very serious guy. He's, he's super educated. He's got a Ph.D. and everything. Um, and uh, he doesn't suffer fools, you know. And so I actually, to interview him, I had to jump through a bunch of hoops and finally he said, look, oh, you know, I was in London, I don't know, it's probably six years ago. And he says, um, I'll interview you in person or, you know. So I met him in this town called Guildford, which is like a half-hour train ride from London. And um, it was one of those things, everything went wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I showed up at the, I had to like show up at Waterloo train station in London. Uh, I was there plenty of time. I got a cup of coffee. I spilled coffee on myself, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, uh, and so, you know, I got on the train, no problem. I'm going to be at Guildford. And I realized it was taking a long time. And then I, then I realized I had gotten on the local train instead of the express. So I was going to be really late. So I'm desperately trying to, you know, contact him any way I can, you know, just nothing radio silence. And then, Finally, at about 20 after 10, I was supposed to be there at 10. My phone rings. He goes, hello, Stephen, are you coming? <laughs> you <know? laughs> and, and it was, you know, and he, he hung around. He must have felt sorry for me. 
And, um, but, uh, yeah, we did the interview, and, uh, and when it came time, you know, some years later to find people to do, somebody to do the forward, I came up with some names of prominent people, and all of a sudden, it wasn't him initially, and then all of a sudden, I was like, wait a minute, it's got to be him, and I was like, forget about these other people, it's got to be him. So I asked him, and he said, yeah, just send me the manuscript, and, and I was sending it to him basically piecemeal as I was finishing it up. So, yeah. yeah I, was, I was thrilled that he would do it. And, uh, and, and, you know, he writes really well, obviously. So, yeah, I feel very fortunate. Oh, that's brilliant. is London Rain Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. When I looked at it, obviously you used the word rain, I'm assuming because of the mods and, uh, you know, Love Rain Over Me by The Who. I'm assuming the that's Who the song. reason. Yeah, yeah. But you used the term classic rock. And, like, I've been doing this radio show for a decade plus, and I have had people ask me just this question. So before I get into your content, I'm going to ask you, define classic rock for me, specifically... Does it include the Beatles? It's funny because I was I actually just did an interview with somebody on the BBC earlier today. They asked me something similar, and um, and it's like it depends on like okay, I'll tell you how I define it. All right, mm-hmm. and and so to me, I look at it as an era of like roughly 1963 to 1973, um, and which of course absolutely includes the Beatles. Um, but um, if you ask, you know, I teach college, and if you ask my students, um, to them, Nirvana is classic rock. Right. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I define it as that period, but I'm not like, it's like defining the Cold War beginning. And, I mean, you could have a room full of historians, none of them will agree when it began and when it ended. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's, I don't think it's that important for me, but that's, that's how I define it. When did it get the, the way I see it, is there was rock and roll, and then along came the mods, and I, I only take it to the mods because of the Who, and then rock and roll became rock. At what point in time does it become classic? Did we lay that across it at some later point in time? Yes, because at the time, um, you know, people didn't really think of it as classic, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, I would Probably in the 90s, I think, when you had that sort of second wave when the grunge thing hit in the early yeah. 90s, it was like, okay, well, that, that's what's happening now. And then back then, that was classic rock. Okay. Yeah, you, it all depends on when. I mean, on oldie stations, they're spinning Elton John now, for goodness sake. I know. Now, <laughs> I'm reading the book. And I expected you were going to say, you know, first there was the Rolling Stones and then. But you started with John Mayle and this guy named Chris Barber. 
to which my entire audience just went, who's that? Lay it on him, because you, you really did nicely take it back historically to this fella. Who's Chris Barber? Why do we care? Well, yeah, thanks for, um, for, for mentioning him, because, um, yeah, I, I, I had the same reaction, because uh, as I started this, I was like, oh, yeah, the Stones. I knew who John Mayall was. I knew who Alexis Corner was, you know. And um, when I started digging into it, it all just came back to this guy, Chris Barber. And um, Chris Barber, he's the guy. He's, he's where in all the British, like, really, he's not a classic, he's not a rock musician. He's a jazz trombonist. But all the classic rock stuff starts with him. Um, because essentially what he did was, um, you know, like I said, he was a jazz trombonist. He started a jazz band in the late 1940s. And uh, he had actually had Alexis Corner in his band back then. Alexis Corner was, uh, if you don't know who he, he was, he was he's considered the father of British blues. Um, and he started Blues Incorporated later with uh, Charlie Watts uh, from Rolling Stones and stuff. So, but anyway, so, so uh, Chris was uh, you know, a guy that was into you know, jazz and blues. And he came up with the idea of, well, why don't we bring some of these great, you know, American bluesmen over to England and let them, you know, entertain us. And people like Muddy Waters and Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and Big Bill Brunsey and Sister Rosetta Tharp. And, and um, all, this is 1950s. He brought them over and, and people were like, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd never experienced anything like that. And the BBC certainly wouldn't play that stuff back then. So um, he kind of laid the basis for that. Then um, in like 1954, he had recorded a song called Rock Island Line, which is a cover of a Lead Belly song. Um, and with the lead uh, singer on that was a guy by the name of Lonnie Donegan. And that became, um, it was like a kind of a washboard kind of a thing. And it became the Skiffle song. If you've ever heard of Skiffle, um, it beca- it, it, Skiffle swept uh, the UK in the late 50s. And basically what it was, was it was a way to kind of make music where you didn't have any money because the kids didn't have any money. Right. So, I, you did do a lot of that. And I think a lot of people who are into this can come up with the name Lonnie Donegan. Right. But what I've never gotten, and I'm, I'm not sure you have this or not, but why is it called skiffle? What is that? I mean, what does the term even mean? Um, it it kind of dates back to um, there was a record came out, American record came out in the 20s called like Hometown Skiffle. And um, it's just a, a real, it's a down-home, washboard, you know, kind of homemade instrument type of music. Fun, upbeat, and anybody can do it. And so, uh, but Chris Barber's band, they used to do these little skiffle interlude sets. They play jazz, and then they do these little skiffle. They'd start, let's, let's play some, you know, Chris Barber would switch from uh, trombone to upright bass, and uh, Donegan would pick up a banjo, and they'd start playing. And so they did this song. And it just spread, and so and and basically, you didn't need anything. You, if you if you had like if you could get a, like a crappy guitar and you could make your own bass and had your mom's uh, like washboard because nobody had washing machines and you mm-hmm. know thimble and there's your percussion and there you have you have a band. Yeah. So everybody that kind of started like you know Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, uh, the Kinks, um, basically started in skiffle bands, and so Chris was behind that. Um, he also uh, started the Marquee Club. Which uh, in London, where everybody that you can think of played Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, The Stones, Moody Blues, Pink Floyd, everybody played there. Um, so he did that. And am I missing anything? Oh, yeah, he started this thing called the National Jazz and Blues Festival, which became the uh, Reading Festival, which became it's like this annual major rock festival in the UK. Know it. Yeah. 
started the marquee and all of that the one thing i noticed when i was reading through the book was how you always sort of had as a subtext to all of this this heavy impact of the club scene and it looks to me like it's something you know because everybody thinks of the cavern club with the beatles and then they think of the star when they went over to germany but it it seems to me like this thing would be a uniquely european thing because people don't bump out of the club scene here in the United States. It seems a uniquely English or European thing for these little clubs to punch out these big, big groups. Hmm. That's an interesting question. I, I think, I mean, certainly there were there are key clubs, uh, you know, here in America, you know, the Whiskey, the Troubadour, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I'm just thinking of like all the, there's the, all those punk rock clubs, um, the, uh, and now I'm blanking, but you know, um, and Seattle, San Francisco, um, you know, Cafe Wa in New York. So there's certain key clubs here in America as well. But it's different about what's different about England is it's just that Americans don't necessarily realize how much smaller, physically smaller England is. Mm-hmm. And so the clubs are, I don't know, more grouped together maybe. Uh, and, and everything sort of happens in London. Certainly back then, um, London is everything. So. That's why this became this very small kind of um, club-based scene, I think. Mm-hmm. You you also go into a point, and I, I'd, I'd heard this, you know, that that um, uh, Keith Richards was an art school, and Mick Jagger was an art school, and Davies was an Mick art Jagger school. Mick Jagger actually was not, but... but oh, yeah, wasn't he? I thought he was an art school. No, he's in economics. My apologies. My apologies. You got me on that one. Tell me about this idea of art school. It basically kept people out of the... Out of the sweatshops, did it not? It did. It was a really cool thing because um, basically what happened with the labor government over in England, um, what you had to do up until about 1960, uh, you know, it was like a, basically it was called national service, like the draft. You had to serve in the military. And um, so they had, once they did away with that, um, the next step sort of was like when you were, like basically you're a kid, especially, you know, if you're a boy, you're a kid, then, you, then you're done school and you go to the factory, right? Mm-hmm. That was yeah. the deal. And all of a sudden, after this national service thing ended, and this labor government came in, and all of a sudden they offered this free art school thing. And you didn't necessarily have to be an artist. Some of them were, but some of them were just kind of, you know, just counting their way in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all these like-minded people started gathering in these art schools. And John Lennon, Pete Townsend, mentioned Keith Richards, Eric Clapton, Sandy Denny. Um, you know, all these incredible artists um, became famous musicians later, but it was like a time for a couple of years where they could sort of compare notes and um, and it became, you know, incubation sort of for the classic rock that was to follow. You mentioned um, quickly, and it was, we're at about page 26, 27, that and in came the Rolling Stones. Every time I every time I interview somebody about the Beatles, the first question I ask them is, why the Beatles? So I'll do the same thing for you. The Rolling Stones. Why the Rolling Stones? I mean, what, what did they do that other people didn't that they became this predominant band? Uh, I think the Stones were sort of like punk rock before even punk rock existed. What I mean... Hello? Oh, yeah, I'm still here. Go ahead. 
what I mean by that is um, like the ideals of punk rock uh, was that like anybody can just do it. You, know, you just anybody can just sort of go up, get up on stage, and just do it. And so the Stones um, were like this first of this new generation to do it, to get up on stage and to play. And that early on, all they were doing were blues covers of American blues and and other people like Bo Diddley and things like that. So they did a lot of covers, Chuck Berry. Um, and but but all the other kids would go to the sh- to see the Stones at the Crawdaddy Club, which is like this place called Richmond, which is like west of London, and they'd be like, "Wow, they're doing it!" And they're like young kids, and why we can do it? And just like the same thing, and and let's start our own band and do that. Mm-hmm. So I think they inspired a lot of people. They weren't like the Beatles in terms of like writing these incredible songs right off the bat. You know, they they t- it took a while for them to kind of get to get going with that. Um, but they were really seriously indebted to the blues. They were serious about playing it, trying to get it right, and um, and it inspired a bunch of people to, to try to do something similar. Let me ask you a uh, a question that is just flat out your opinion. And, and, and what I'm going to ask about is really 2020 vision. When you look back at this time frame, mid-60s, and you see the Stones and you see the Yardbirds, I always took it that the Yardbirds were much more scary a band to parents. They were much more filled with with energy. And I often wondered why the Stones rather than the Yardbirds. And I know this is just your opinion, but why the Stones rather than the Yardbirds? In terms of popularity? Right, success. I mean, I get it. People know who the Yardbirds are, but the Stones have, good God, how many albums? Yeah, it just became, I mean, really about the songs. Once that, you know, Jagger and Richards were sort of forced to start writing songs by Andrew Oldham, their manager. Mm-hmm. Um, and they figured out they could actually write songs, um, and they got better at it and, and started to, you know, uh, kind of evolve and try different things. Um, their output of songs was just, you know, pretty stellar as the 60s moved along. The Yardbirds never... I mean, they they had you know some great classic songs, but they really didn't match that output. You know, I mean, skill wise as a band, I mean, certainly trend, you know, fantastic talent wise, but I don't think they could match their you know output. That's too bad. That's too bad because I I really like early Yardbird stuff. I think it just yeah, sounds. It's right. time for our first break. Allow our affiliates to play a couple of their commercials. We'll be back in just one minute to talk with author Stephen Toe. London, rain over me. How England's capital built classic rock.
talk about London getting into that Stones or Beatles. This is another one, just your opinion. You talk about London getting into Stones or Beatles, and you had to make a decision. Which are you? Beatles. Beatles? <laughs> See, I'm just the opposite. I'm the Stones. That's why I told you right at the beginning of the interview, I get into this argument with people. People want to do this. What is classic rock? And they'll mention the right. Beatles, and I'll say to them, it can't be. Because the Beatles came out of Liverpool, and that's where all the jazz music came through. Sure. So they well, didn't plenty, carry the same plenty, thing. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but there was actually plenty of, uh, there was this thing, they called it trad jazz, mm-hmm. or it's like we would call it like Dixieland jazz here. Um, and that was kind of the, the dominant thing in London in the 50s into like the early 60s until basically the Beatles came along and then the Stones toppled that and, and it became all about, they called it R&B, but basically blues. In terms of, you start to get into other bands, and the one you started talking about in the book, writing about in the book, and it just sort of sounded like these guys were a bolt out of the complete blue, and which is I find interesting, because again, as I was talking about earlier, about the Yardbirds not having as much success, in the book you talk about Eric Burden and the Animals, and how influential, and how House of the Rising Sun was just a shot from the heavens, but in the scheme of things, the animals really are mid-level best in the USA. Tell me, tell me where these, uh, where Eric Burden and the animals fit in this puzzle. Well, I think what what they did, they brought something different to London because those guys are from Newcastle, and which is uh, northern, northeastern England, not too terribly far from the Scottish border. A very like a rough shipbuilding kind of town. Um, they grew up uh, very, very differently than the Stones did. And so I think they brought that element to the music. And um, they didn't, they did covers. You know, they really never blossomed as songwriters. But House of the Rising Sun, when they covered it, when that song's like, I don't know, 100 years old or whatever, you know, um, was covered by Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan. And then their take on it, it became, it became their song, you know. And not only that, um, it had become a classic, but it was too long. I mean, it was like over four minutes, and the BBC wouldn't play it, and mm-hmm. nobody would play it. And, and the uh, animals were like, we're, keep, we're keeping it at four minutes. We don't care. We're not shortening it. And eventually it caught on, and, um, and it just broke the barrier for how long you could write a song. When you talk about bands that sort of buck the whole trend and don't much care about it, um, the kinks have to come to mind. And you started talking about the kinks. You mentioned they invented feedback. I get it. They have a lot of hits. But is that their contribution? They took these blues songs and they made them stronger. They made them angrier. They, they turned them into a, like I said, rock and roll became rock. Is that, is that what the kinks did? The kinks are like, uh, you know, if you looked up underrated in a dictionary, mm-hmm. they would be there. Um, because they, what they did, they did so much. Um, when they started out, they were almost, they were really kind of getting back to punk rock because of what, you know, the sound of you, that muddy sound of you really got me. It was just, again, really gritty um, and, um, and all day and all the night, those songs. But then as they blossomed and Ray Davies became, uh, you know, sort of delving into English themes and, um, you know, concept albums about Village Greens and things like that, um, they took it to another level. So, mm-hmm. and then later on in the seventies, they went beyond that and did some other things. But um, yeah, they were just so, uh, so many wonderful songs uh, that just a lot of people don't even know about. 
So do you think that uh, Dave Davies or Ray Davies actually played that You Really Got Me and All Day All the Night riff, or was that Jimmy Page? No, it was, it was Dave. Dave played it. You're positive of that? Well... All right, man, um, you're on record here. I'm recording this. You know, um, <laughs> Jimmy Page has been... First of all, I'm a huge Zeppelin fan, but he's been given credit for certain things. And uh, no, I mean, from all of my sources, that's Dave Davies playing that riff. Fair enough. I'm not content to be with you in the daytime. Girl, I want to be with you all of the time. Tell me about the best band that didn't make it. Um, you list a lot of names I didn't know. Uh, What's the best that didn't make it? What should the audience go listen to? So meaning that make it, meaning people aren't all that familiar with? Exactly that. They're not all the right. Kinks, they're not the Stones, they're not the Yardbirds. Um, the Pentangle. The, tell me about the Pentangle. <laughs> I've never heard of them. Who are they? The Pentangle was... Uh, I didn't really wasn't familiar with them much at all either um, when I started, um, but um, they were. Um, I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Bert Janch, um, but a lot of what he did inspired um, Jimmy Page, um, and especially his tunings and his percussive style of playing and things. So, um, but he was part of uh, this sort of underground folk scene, and um, so it was him and uh, John Renborn, another fast just a fantastic guitar player and um and they started this five-piece band and and they evolved to become this kind of a their acoustic folky blues um they had some electric in them um traditional folk and yet bluesy and the drummer plays with brushes instead of sticks they're the kind of band that you just sit there and you don't you're not up jumping around you're just sitting there and it's like you're at a at the philharmonic right you just Mm -hmm. sit there and you listen to them and then you clap because they're that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those religious experiences, huh? Just, uh, just the, the talent of that band is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and they would actually come to the States and play, like, after the Grateful Dead. And the people, you know, mm-hmm. and that's in the book, too, about that. Like, Bill Graham, the concert promoter, is like, you know, now quiet down, everyone. You don't want to listen, leave, <laughs> otherwise shut up. Oh, I love it. Love it. Now, look, you talked about with this with this band, you just talked about the musicianship and there is, you know, there is the Eric Clapton, there is, you know, the the Jimmy Page and such. But there's a story in there about the Spencer Davis group and they're talking about keys and somebody went, it's an E and they turn another guy turned to him and he meant A and such. Is there a side to this, and this is always the argument in, in music, is it, the, is it the musicianship or is it the feeling? See, classic rock to me seems so much more feeling than musicianship. And I, I just keyed on that one thing because I looked at it and went, that seems to be you know, why I like the Yardbirds so much. Yeah, they got musicianship, but it's all that power and the performance and such. Am I reading that correctly? No, I think you're on to something, and it just actually, as you were talking, it just made me think about, um, you know, I, I go to, I have a, a local gym I go to regularly, and, and usually I have my earbuds in, but once in a while, I don't, and they'll be playing, you know, what's popular now, and, 
and and I'm, it doesn't bother me. I don't, it doesn't. I don't dislike it. It just. But I forget it. It's like disposable. As soon as I walk out of there, I've forgotten what they were just playing. Thank you. And, <laughs> and then so one day, I think I went home and I watched uh, the, the movie The Graduate. You know, with Dustin Hoffman back in the '60s. Yeah. And it's entirely uh, uh, Simon and Garfunkel is the entire soundtrack. And I could feel. I was like, these songs are touching my soul. You know what I mean? It's this isn't disposable music. You know, and those guys harmonize on, you know, Scarborough Fair, and it's like that. So I think what you're talking about is real. It's There's certainly plenty of great talent, but it is it is more than that. It's, it's just so much soul, and uh, that, that you can just, it just touches you, you feel it, and it makes your hair stand up, or you get emotional, you know, so yeah. Talking with Stephen Toe, the author of the book London, Rain Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. Once again, only available right now in online sellers. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble online, Books A Million online, that's where you'll find the book. You're not going to be able to yet pick it up in a bookstore, so you need to grab it online. We need to take one minute so our affiliates will have the ability to make the people that keep them on the air very happy. But... Back in 60 seconds to continue talking with author Stephen Toe here on Rock School. can get you to answer this question because this is another fight I have with people. A lot of people believe it was it was Pete Townsend that walked in and said I need a hundred watt amp, and then there are people that believe it was the small faces that went in and said I had a I needed a hundred watt amp. Do you know who was the first one that walked out with one of those Marshalls, those heavy monsters? Was it uh, was it the faces or was it the who? 
I don't know the answer to that. I was going to say, um, it depends I, on who's telling the story, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, one thing, I, I, I can't specifically talk about the 100-watt amp, but certainly Pete Townsend was really, he was one that was really pushing for, you know, not power and, and the sort of different dynamics of what he could do with an amplifier. And so... It, if I had to, if I had to guess, and it would be a guess, I'd go with Pete Townsend. Yeah, that's that's the one I think as well. It sounds to me like the faces were chasing, you know. And Ichiku Park doesn't exactly sound like a, mar- a Marshall. Talk to me about progressive rock. Is it classic rock, or have we created a new branch? And and on top of that, why London? Why not Berkeley here in the United States? Um, I think it's all part of classic rock. I mm-hmm. mean, again, you know, we can argue as <laughs> what is classic rock and what's not classic rock, and it's, you know, that's fine. But, um, but, um, but progressive rock, for the most part, is a British phenomenon. There's exceptions. You know, Rush comes to mind. <laughs> I was just listening to some Rush albums after Neil Peart died, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, I, and it's like, you know, the critics hated them. I know this has nothing to do with it, but the yeah. critics hated them. And I'm like, every album I've listened to, I get done with it. I go, man, that album is brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it became a game. I hate him more than you until in some time. And I don't remember what it was. It's like all the switches through and they became the grandfathers of the progressive rock movement. And everybody thought they were great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for the, I mean, of course, Rush was Canadian, but um, mm-hmm. most of, for the most part, um, prog rock or you know, progressive rock was, was uh, British. And Really, that had a lot to do with the Brits uh, discovering their own identity. Once they kind of got to about the mid-60s, they were started to get more confidence in their own music and stopped, let's say, covering all the American blues. And they're like, well, what do we have? We have this kind of this classical musical tradition. Hang on a second. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so <clears throat> they started to delve into that, and some of the more middle-class kids coming from outside of London were... Who are, some of whom were trained, were you know delving into you know either classical or people like Django Reinhardt, um, and um, incorporating that into uh, into rock and roll, and it was a completely new thing. So yeah, it's where King Crimson springs up, and Yes, and some of the other prog bands. Thing about prog to me, it it takes a specific listener. I don't see somebody jumping from the Stones to the Who to progressive. Just because I think I think it's all great music. I think Prague has to, especially yes, especially the early, early. You know, careful with that axe, Eugene. You you need a specific person listening to it. It it sort of seemed to have to create its own audience. Yes or no? Yeah, it's funny because people were open to it, and uh, it's like Bill Bruford was telling me to this. And he talks about it a little bit in the forward where. It was like you could do, because their money was there and the audiences were open to it, you could do what you wanted to do. So as a musician, you could you didn't have to worry about, well, is this going to sell? Because it, you could do you could go in the audience and try whatever you wanted to do. And, and not, it's not for everybody. But I think one of the cool things about Prague is there's so much variety in it. So there's the more, say, dissonant stuff like the King Crimson stuff. Um, and then the more melodic stuff like yes, uh, you know, and you have the other thing you mentioned the Who too, because the Who, um, the Who does everything right. I mm-hmm. mean, they're they were kind of punk rock when they got started again before punk rock existed, but they're sort of that. They're mod. They're like they kind of delve into prog rock. They're kind of del- they're delving into psychedelia. They have concept albums. They kind of did it all. 
mentioned in that answer the idea that the record industry, the music industry, allowed musicians to go do what they do, if not even have one or two albums, and then it's a third one that hits. You also talked earlier about the fact that the music today is disposable. It, it seems by giving an artist the opportunity to have a failure or two or what have you, they create better music, whereas the stuff today is so attached to audience research that it's it just sounds too cookie cutter i wish the i wish the people of the music industry would get back to allowing some bands to have some some failures before they go out because not everybody loved you know the first pink floyd albums they were they were different it's a it's a great point and and certainly uh given the artist that freedom to, to fail, and you know, you think about like American Idol or what other America's got, whatever those shows are that people watch that I don't watch, um, but where you have your kind of create this instant sensation, and and that's yeah, I don't know if it's really healthy. It's it's almost like TV shows. Think about like the great TV shows that of the past, Seinfeld or Cheers or All in the Family, going back to the seventies. They were they failed. Yeah, it took them a few years to catch on, and and I think it goes the same for music because not they're not always great out of the gate it takes a little while and yeah pink floyd certainly was well they're so different early on or you mm-hmm. know bands just take a while to develop and yeah it it would be nice to, just to give them that musical freedom i mean i think you're seeing a lot of not to be like sound like an old guy which i am but <laughs> there's there's um you know about today's kids that you know but yeah. there's there's so many um talented young people making great music and a lot of the bands that i listen to that are like current are just underground bands or just they play clubs and nobody knows who they are but they're so good and it's like can't yeah give them a chance to get their music out there you know yeah well i I live about 35 minutes from the french quarter and i've said it a hundred times the the greatest musicians in the city are not playing the superdome tonight you know right yep toward the end of the book you said blues rock rehappens. Is is that simply Led Zeppelin coming to life? 
that was one of those things I struggled because there's this thing called the blues boom in like 68 into 69 in London. And that's the successor to what they called the R&B boom of 63, 64. So I was trying to connect the two and I was having a hard time doing <laughs> it. Um, so, but it, I think it was a combination of things. I think uh, you know, Zeppelin was certainly along the forefront. Uh, Cream was there, uh, Fleetwood Mac. People don't realize Fleetwood Mac was a heavy blues band early on. Yeah, so so they really, I think there's that. And and speaking of John Mayall, I mean, he was a guy, too. He was he just kind of kept, when the blues thing sort of died out the first time, he kept it going. So he kept the thread going, and I think that also allowed the thing to happen, re- re-happen later. And then, of course, Jimi Hendrix showed up in London, and that blew the top off of everything. Right, and that's, is that where America catches up? When we started sending people over with Hendrix and such, or do you think it was the birds? Because the birds wasn't weren't overly well received. No, and Hendrix certainly. I mean, Hendrix was life changing, really. Um, but um, I don't know if he was really showing that America was back or had arrived or anything like that. It was just one guy, but just one incredibly, ridiculously talented guy, a visionary kind of guy. The name of the book is London Rain Over Me, How England's Capital Built Classic Rock. And once again, the author, Stephen Toe. I enjoyed it front to back. I thought it was a a wonderful piece. Thank you very much. Is it available at all, as they say, all booksellers nationwide? It is actually exclusively online, except for where I'm doing, uh, you know, appearances and stuff. So basically, you know, Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com, you know, places like that. Superb, superb. Hey, Stephen Thank you for spending an hour with me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the book, and uh, if you write another one, you call me back again, yeah? Great. Well, thanks, Joe. I enjoyed it as well. All right. Appreciate it.